Um, well, thank you for the privilege again it is to be able to bring the word to you in the mornings. Um, the opportunity to study for this specifically all week is always incredibly valuable, um, both in my life, uh, in my family's life, uh, and I hope then today for our church's life. Um, today, the question that I really just want to start with um, is as I was reading through our text for today, um, John is very clear in what he's expecting. He's very clear in what he delivers. He's very clear in laying out his, his argument again, uh, just as ever. Uh, but what struck me was not particularly what he um, was commanding. It's so much as the fact that what he seems to be commanding doesn't always seem to make sense together. So individually, his commands make sense. As you read from verse to verse to verse, it seems to make sense. But there's a piece in there when you put them all together and try to make an application of it in your life that it seems like it doesn't quite fit. And so the question that I kind of want to begin with today is, is there tension between truth and love? Is there a tension present in our lives between truth and love? Now this is going to take you know two weeks to kind of work through as we uh, work through the second epistle of John. But today I, I think we'll arrive at a, at a good answer, but nonetheless it's something that we have to wrestle with. Uh, there's a commentator that says, truth or tact? You have to choose. Most times they are not compatible. And I think the reality is, is that they often do feel mutually exclusive. When you have truth in one hand and love on the other, many times it feels as if they are mutually exclusive. And I find myself as an elder, I often want to try and couch my love in the truth by justifying it as the truth is loving. It's easy for me to, to say what I want to say and call it loving simply because it's the truth. Or I notice other times in my life in sharing truth that it's easy for me to begin sharing truth and love. It's very easy for me to begin that way. But if the message that I'm communicating is not received, then I often grow in harshness, and that harshness then begins masquerading as truth. And so it becomes very difficult to try to maintain both truth and love when we're trying to bring them on the same platter. And your title for today's sermon is Knowing, Knowing God and Walking in Truth and love. A philosopher said that the truth is often a terrible weapon of aggression. It is possible to lie and even to murder for the truth. And so truth and love seem to exclude one another. And we'll find this even being true among churches in our culture today. You have love-oriented places that place a high value on counseling, fellowship, recovery groups, soup kitchens. I'm sure you can think of, if you're at least familiar with any of the churches in this area, ones that might fall into that category. And on the other hand, we have truth-oriented churches that place a high value on apologetics, uh, so defending the faith, doctrine, evangelism, preaching. Does that sound like any church you might know? Maybe. <laughs> I'm sure you can think of others as well. And so the question then is, is how are we going to resolve this tension? I think, I hope at least that it's true in your life that you maybe see some of that tension. If you were doing the Renovate Us this week to prepare for today, uh, that was one of the questions. Is that a true uh, and present thing in your life, this tension between delivering truth, as we would understand it biblically, and doing that in and walking in biblical Christian love? How do we make these two things fit together? And so today, let's uh, begin with our text. Uh, let's hop into Second John. We're going to read through the entire letter because it's very short, uh, and then we'll focus in on just the first six verses uh, for today. He says this, he says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, and truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver, 
and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. For everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And Father, we come to you today, Father, and sit at the foot of your word, Father. We'd ask that you teach us. We ask that you use your Holy Spirit to illuminate in our hearts what we need to hear today. Father, that you would increase our faith. And Father, that we would understand that there is a response that is demanded from hearing your words. So today, let's, uh, let's jump into this. Um, when we're looking at the introduction of a lot of letters, it's often easy to kind of skip over them. Uh, introductions to letters, mainly in our culture, particularly just to identify to who we are talking. Uh, what's interesting is when you get an email from somebody, they still put your name at the top as if it were an old-fashioned letter, right? Um, we want to identify very explicitly, typically, who we're speaking to. But the problem is, is that's not, that's taking our culture's into scripture and what we need to understand is that the ancient world had a very specific way of writing letters and we've seen it all the way through Paul we see it all the way through John we see it in Peter even as he's writing his epistles and we have to understand that in that culture in the ancient world we have a specific format and then the writers of the New Testament are adopting much of that format but changing some very specific things and if we skip past the introduction we're going to miss a lot of uh, the bulk, if you look at just the amount that we have in an introduction and a uh, conclusion in this specific letter, we're going to miss almost half of the words that he uses. There's a lot of theology, there's a lot of doctrine that is given in just the first four verses even. So one of the first things that we have to kind of confront is, uh, who's, who's this lady? Um, it's kind of a weird way to start this letter in particular. Um, have we uncovered some tryst in John's past? Uh, in which he has this lady on the side with whom he loves, yet then instructs. Um, no, very simply, this lady that most people would agree is the church. Uh, John's metaphorical way of greeting a local church and its members, and likewise, the children are not his children with the lady. It is the church's members, the children in the faith. It's very similar in First John. All these times that you see my beloved or my dear children or little children listen to me, all of that affectionate language is the same thing that we're encountering here. And so, as we, uh, as we kind of put that to the side, we jump into immediately what he has to say. He says, he is the elder, and he is writing to the lady and her children, to the church and her members in this specific and particular place. He says, whom I love and truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. He says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, if we're going to look at our question for today, we have to skip down to verse 3. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. In truth and love. So notice that John does not treat love and truth as being at odds with each other. And nor do they merely coexist. I think that's, that's one of the dangers. We do know that truth and love kind of fit together, but it's not a walking together type of relationship. For our, at least me, um, in trying to be a, uh, an elder and a father, uh, and even just a Christian as a discipler of other disciples, I, I do find that love and truth tend to just kind of coexist. Uh, and I've not really studied until even now exactly what it looks like for those two to merge together. Uh, they don't just merely coexist. And John is making this connection much deeper than just a side-by-side -side type thing. See, in biblical Christianity, love and truth go together. It was the truth which bound John in love to this church, especially the truth about Christ in opposition to the lie of the heretics. So we can't leave our context of 1 John, right? There are two big things of 1 John. One is that we would believe rightly about the incarnation of Christ. 
The second thing is that we can know that we can know God. And so we can't leave that context behind because this is just in keeping with where he was in his first letter. And so particularly the truth of which he is speaking is again the incarnate Christ in opposition to the lies that we just experienced in chapter 5 as John is combating the lies of the heretics and the false teachers. And so it's that truth which binds John and then in love to this specific church. And he even kind of connects the gap when he says, all who know the truth. It's not just his love. It's not just his truth. It's not just his truth and love for the church. It includes all who know the truth. The communion of love in the Christian church is as wide as the communion of faith. So what does this mean for us? That means when we go to T4G and there are pastors all around us that may not line up exactly where we are on everything, we still have awesome communion and love because we are gathered there around the truth of Christ in the flesh. That's what the, that's what the church universal can look like. But when we're talking about a specific tie here, it's not just the elder as he identifies, it's not just Matt and I's you know, connection in the truth and love for the church, it's all of us. We are all bound to each other in truth and love. And so for us today, if we're going to look at how these things kind of go together, we're going to talk about how real Christianity involves love. And so your first point today is that God commands love. Let's just start on the basics, the easy things, the low-hanging fruit. God commands love. We're going to specifically look at verses 5 and 6 at this point, and we'll reach back to the others in a little bit. But he says this, he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new command, but the one that we have had from the beginning. Literally, from the beginning would be from Jesus, and particularly from the time that he established the church. So this, this is not a beginning as in a reach back to creation. This is a beginning as we are talking about the community of faith. That's our context here. That's the same context that he is speaking about. From the beginning, he's talking as an apostle, particularly the beginning with Jesus. So we heard this commandment from Jesus, and then in our implication that he is making, the church age. So John is making an implication of the church that's not something that we read in. He's making an implication that Jesus' commands have a lot to do with the church. But the church didn't happen until Christ ascended. So John's understanding is that everything that Jesus taught has to do with the Christian life, which is lived out then in the gathering of believers. And so John is relaying just God's command, not his own. It's not as, even if he's just saying, remember God said, he makes it explicit. This is not a command from me, this is a command from God that we heard from the beginning. And so God is commanding this, and it's a good model for me in preaching. You know, whatever things that God has commanded, I must pass on to the church. That's my job. That's the only reason that I preach. His commands are my concerns. And teachers of the truth who live loveless lives, though, will find that people reject their truth, and the truth will not be served. My goal as a teacher is to serve the truth, to serve God. And so if I just bring truth to you, Without love, even if my truth is right, that truth will not be received and it will not be served. So the whole point of what I'm trying to do will not be met. But on the same token, biblical truth is not satisfied when simple facts are just coldly laid out. I can't just read the commentary here. I just throw them out here. That's not what preaching is. That's not what an elder's job is. It's to take the truth of God's word and help us apply it to our lives. It's to take the word of God and proclaim it as truth with boldness but with real consequences for today. I listened to a sermon last night. Um, I don't want to name names, uh, but I was at an uh, event locally um, helping another church, and the, the, the sermon was a sermon. <laughs> I think there's a difference between a sermon and preaching. Um, this sermon started with a text, um, didn't even use the entire parable, um, and then went on to not reference it for the rest of the sermon. Uh, he pulled out six other examples of Scripture. And, and the danger here is that all of these things are right. I mean, it fits, but that's not preaching the text. That's not preaching Scripture. 
It's a sermon about how we should act. And I think Scripture by itself has implications for how we should live in and of its very nature. You see, the content and intent of the author has to be the content and intent of what I say, just as the content and intent of what Jesus said was the content and intent of what John has said over two letters now, let alone his entire gospel as he recited and gave forward the things that Jesus did. And so for us, when we are preaching, uh, it needs to be about causing lives to change. The Word of God is active and alive. It cuts deeper than any two-edged sword. It has to be active in our lives. And there's only one way for us to take that truth, though. It has to be accompanied in love. But it's also a model for all of us. We should not live our own lives according to our own ideas or selfish interests. When John is writing this letter, he takes this opportunity to instruct the church in what Jesus said, not what he thinks is best. That's a danger even for us as we are reading books about church, as we are reading books in general. Is, is this the thoughts of Jesus filtered in a teaching format, or is this guy's, is this, this guy's good ideas uh, that he thinks will help us run this place better? And they're two distinct things. Likewise, for us, we need to be living our lives according to what Jesus is saying, not what we think Jesus is saying, not what we think the church should be, but what Jesus has revealed it to be. When we're talking about love as well, we should understand that Christians are to love neighbors and enemies, right? But we need to understand that the separation is that we are bound to each other by the bond of truth. So love for enemies should happen. Love for neighbors should happen. You should Love your neighbor as yourself. This is one of the greatest commandments of all, right? But it's a different type of love that we have with the believers, that we have with the elect children. And the fact that we are bound together by a bond of truth. We can love believers, each other, in a way that we will never be able to love our neighbors, in a way that we will never be able to love our enemies, in a way that our neighbors will never even be able to love their own neighbors because we are united by the bond of truth together we love each other because of the truth that we share and heretics may leave us and go out into the world but in the christian society the truth will remain secure why because jesus is the truth and the word does not change and so as we are gathered here together and understand that god commands love in the body we are bound together by truth and from truth comes a love that only we can share with others who have the truth. And so, kind of as an application for our greater society, and this move that we have uh, in our contemporary movement towards church unity, we must be aware of compromising the very truth on which alone true love and unity depend. If we're going to sacrifice anything in order to bring about unity, it cannot be truth. Without truth, there is no unity. There is no real basis for love. Our greater society outside the church has already been doing this for a long time. Truth has been relative in our society for a very, very long time. Um, back when I was, a, I, I think I was a believer in high school my senior year, um, I was uh, a truth-based guy, so apologetics was me. Um, I made people cry in my uh, English class as we were discussing uh, topics. Okay? We sat in a circle, and each, uh, each time we did this throughout the entire year, um, somebody got to come with whatever topic they wanted, and they got to lead the discussion, and we went around in a circle and talked. And every time it got to me, I'm calling out people for truths that they're trying to express that are not in keeping with what they said the last time the circle went around. And uh, apologetics was a big deal to me, and that was truth without love. It was very easy for me to see how that happened um, there. But with their relative truth, we find this tolerance movement where you can believe what you want as long as it doesn't affect me. There's no unity there. The only thing that they're united around is their desire for lack of truth. That is not a real, genuine unity. If that were a real, genuine unity, we would not have issues with racism still. We would not have uh, gender issues right now. If there was a real unity and desire and love for each other based on our common truth, it would exist now, but it doesn't. The only place you find this existing is in a place where truth is not relative. It is an objective truth, particularly when we're talking about the objective truth of the Word of God. 
So if we're going to look for unity in the church, it can't be by any type of, uh, of plan. It can't be by any type of event. We're not going to have fellowship rallies where we try to all of a sudden generate this type of unity. The unity that we have even here in this body is because of the truth of God's word. So moving on in our text, um, when we look at how John is commanding love and kind of how he sets up his foundation, uh, he begins with this change of uh, change of an address. So Paul would never say it quite this way. John is the only one who says it this way. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He adds to what Paul typically would say. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. And so for us, why, why would he do that? And if you're just saying, well, this is the introduction, let's get to the meat, it's easy to skip this. There's a lot in these three words. Grace and mercy are both expressions of God's love. If we're talking about God's love, we don't start with just his commandment, we start with his example. God has been demonstrating love since before the foundation of the world. Let's start with him. And John starts with him. He says that grace and mercy and peace will be with us. For grace and mercy are both expressions of God's love. Grace to the guilty and to the undeserving. Mercy to the needy and the helpless. And peace is that restoration of harmony with God, others, and self that we call salvation. And so if you put all that together, peace indicates the character of salvation, mercy, our need of it, and grace, God's free provision of it in Christ. And so we find that God's example is even here with us now before the commandment ever crosses John's lips. God makes it clear in his letter here that the way of love is the way of obedience. God commands us to love. The second thing for today is the elder author personifies love. See, that God commands love, particularly in verse 5 and 6. But the elder, or author, personifies love. Now, understand this entire point, right? Point number two is an exercise in context and implications, all right? Um, you're not going to see pretty much most of what I say in black and white here. All right, this is an exercise in context and implications. Yet I think that by the time we are done with it, you will see that that is, in fact, everything that he's saying. So first, how does the elder author personify love? The first way is he demonstrates it in his manner. He demonstrates it in his manner. He is gentle with them when he addresses them. He says, um, in verse 5, he says, And now I ask you, I ask. He speaks softly. Gentleness, with kindness, with love. John has apostolic authority. He can say whatever he wants, and they have to do it. And it's not how he writes here. He's issuing a command by asking. He's not trying to win his own way. That's not what he's doing here. If he wanted to win his own way, he would just tell them what's up. And he could claim apostolic authority and lay down the law. He's not trying to win his own way. He's trying to show what is best for everyone. He begins by asking. Mark Dever says this. He says, Overspeaking will turn up the temperature and turn down the reasonability and the love. Overspeaking to a situation will turn up the temperature and turn down the reasonability and the love. He demonstrates it in a gentle and a leading and in a shepherding manner. He cares for them and he wants to show them what is best for everyone. But he also demonstrates this in matter. It's not just how he says it, it's what he says. His concern is pastoral. He does not want or he does not ask them for something that would profit him. This is for them alone. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we would love one another. This is not going to benefit him directly. He's not receiving financial compensation from them. 
He has relationships with them, but they're over a distance. This is not going to benefit him directly. Who it's going to benefit primarily is the one another's that are present and listening to the letter. He wants them to learn to live together and love. And it seems to make sense, right? When you love your family, you enjoy them. But have you ever wondered why it's so hard to live with someone else? How many of you have had a roommate of some sort before you married your spouse or currently have a roommate? All right, most of us have experience like this. But sadly, even with your spouse, if you're married now, um, why is it so hard to live together sometimes? Why is it so hard to travel with other people? Have you ever wondered particularly what's setting those things off? Why is that difficult? It seems like it'd be easy, right? We're all going to go to this place, we're going to have fun, and we're going to come back and, and say that we had fun. And, but you go, and it's chaos, and people are killing each other, um, and, you know, body parts are flying out the window on the way home. Why does that happen? And we've not had that happen on our trips yet with Adeline. Um, she sleeps a lot, at least the last time that we traveled. Um, but I'm sure that day is coming when the kicking and stuff happens, and, you know, the threats come from the driver's seat um, of my absolute domain and control over the situation where I will pull over and smite thee and leave you um, under the tire, right? Um, those things might happen. Why is it so hard for us to do that? Because we're not looking at each other. I think that's John's point. If you're walking in the truth, that's great. But what happens when you get all these truth seekers and truth walkers together? Do they love each other? You can be absolutely on point when it comes to truth and walking in that truth. What happens when you get next to someone else who is on point with truth and walking in that truth? Why is it so hard to coexist? Because our concern has to be for each other. And John's concern, in this case, is pastoral. As an elder, this has great implications for me um, and, and even for Matt. I, I must be concerned with the church's good, not fundamentally my own. That's the kind of concern and love that this elder is showing as a concern primarily and first for the church. As a shepherd of God's flock, as an under-shepherd of God's flock, I have to be concerned about the flock, not myself. When it comes to defending the flock, it has to be potentially at the expense of my own life. When it comes to the leading of the flock, it has to be potentially at even at the sake of my own health. Leading the flock is the primary concern for this elder, and it must be for me as well. My concerns when I'm handling the congregation should be things that will be good for the flock. I had to ask myself questions like, am I caring for the weak? Am I an advocate for the voiceless? Am I causing a sheep to stumble? Am I deferring to the lowly? Am I modeling humility? Am I seeking what is greatest for others? Am I sacrificial in serving? These questions must be asked when you're dealing with someone who is caring for a greater body. So understand, though, that while those are all our questions that I have to ask myself, um, Matt and I's role as elders is not just to lead. That is a primary point of the office, is to be a leader and a caretaker of the flock. But we're also to be examples, and examples that should be emulated, particularly when we're doing it right. Um, but we should be emulated. And so this has implications for all of us. Are you caring for the weak? Are you an advocate for the voiceless? Are you causing a sheep to stumble? Are you deferring to the lowly? Are you modeling humility? Are you seeking what is greatest for others? Are you sacrificial in your serving? These concerns of John have to come all the way through in the Christian life. A church at large should be characterized by its love for its own. In Philippians 2, four it says that we must look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Jesus tells us in John's gospel that they will know who are his followers by their love for the brothers. The fellowship of the church is created by truth and exhibited in love. Each qualifies the other. So when we're trying to take truth and love and merge these together, and we're trying to see exactly how John is modeling it in both his manner and his matter, we have to understand that the fellowship of the church is created by truth. It starts in truth. That's where unity happens. 
but it's exhibited in love. Love is how we can see that we do have the same truth. Love is how we can see that we are united in the same things. Love is the exhibiting factor of this truth that is existing. And so for truth, let's work through both of these real quickly. Our love is not to be so blind as to ignore the views and conduct of others. If we're going to kind of define truth and see what are, not where is our extreme, but where should we kind of be residing, truth um, would indicate that our love is not to be blind as to ignore the views and conduct of others. Another word for that would be our society's definition of tolerance. We cannot be blind to other people's views and ignore their conduct or their views simply because we love them. Truth demands more than that. Our love for others is not to undermine our loyalty to the truth. Everyone wants to say that it's just about love. God is love. Why don't we love each other? We talked about this several weeks ago uh, in many different ways. But we can never let our love for others undermine our loyalty to the truth. All the martyrs in Christian history didn't die because they loved others. They died because of their loyalty to God's word. So how should love temper then truth, on the other hand? Well, we must never champion the truth in a harsh or bitter spirit. So while our love for others is, cannot undermine our loyalty to the truth, it doesn't give us the right then to be harsh and bitter towards those who are opposed to the truth. Now, John gives some specific ways to handle that uh, in 7 through 13, which we'll talk about next week. But I think what's interesting is if you look at verse 4, it talks about those children walking in the truth. And those children that were walking in the truth in verse 4, they needed to be exhorted to love one another in verse 5. <laughs> so how does love temper truth? Well, they were walking in truth. What happens when you get a bunch of walkers of truth together? They need to be exhorted to love one another in verse 5. I think ultimately when we're dealing with how to do these things kind of temper each other, uh, we need to understand that our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. That's how they fit together. It's not a coexisting. They certainly interact with each other and work together. Our love will soften um, our hard truth and our truth will strengthen a soft love. So finally, number three, obedience characterizes Love. Obedience characterizes love. So God commands love and the elder personifies it, but what is this love? Let's define love a little bit more. And love is quite simply this. Walking in obedience to God's commands. Verse 6. Love is quite simply just walking in obedience to God's commands. Awesome. That's helpful. What's the command? <laughs> if love is simply to walk in obedience to God's commands, that's fine and dandy, but what happens if I don't know what the commands are? Well, his command is that you walk in love. Verse 6 is this, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, as David Platt would say. Huh. He's explicit. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that when he just lays it out. This is love. This is the command. Huh. I can't get that high. He says this is love. We walk according to his commandments, and this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So, you see kind of the reciprocal nature of this thing, right? This is the one thing, this is the other. This is the same thing. This is where we started. It seems like it's reciprocal, but it's not cyclical. It's not around and around in a circle. It's spiraling. I think that, that it brings a depth to what John is telling us here. It's not just something that you walk around in circles, but it gets deeper as you go. Dever said this as well. He said, I found in my Christian life that as I grow to understand what God has commanded, I am better able to love. And as I practice loving, I have more interest in going back to the scriptures 
and seeing how God wants me to keep going forward in obedience. And so truth causes him to love better. That loving wants him to understand truth more, and you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper as they play off of each other and as you walk in these things. See, if we are disciples of Christ, more and more his image will be formed in us as we learn to love as he has instructed us to love. That's what a disciple of Christ looks like. And it echoes 1 John 2 and 3. When we hear John's initial um, treatise way back um, 14 weeks ago, he says this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. This is love for God, to obey his commands. Understand that Second John is not just a repeat of First John, okay? It's not like it's not necessary. Um, he's saying much of the same things, but it is wholly necessary for the Christian life. It, this uh, letter for us here gives us a different aspect when we're talking about what does it mean to love and how does that work with truth. We see the same command because that's what John reached back to even in his first letter. He's reaching back to Jesus. And so the redundancy is not between the letters, it's between the letter and the gospel. And the gospel is something that we have to carry with us every day. We don't move on from the gospel. John doesn't move on from the gospel. Literally, it's his gospel. He wrote it. And he keeps echoing these things that Jesus said, that Jesus did. The things of the gospel, he echoes throughout both of his letters, all three of them for that matter. And so as we approach this, it's not just a redundant, yep, walk in truth, walk in love, love each other. I get it. He's already said that a lot. Um, Jesus said it a lot. That's the point, though. That's the point. We have a bunch of truth seekers that don't know how to love each other. More teaching is necessary. Because growing in teaching, growing in truth, will then cause us to love. I think it's interesting to know a small piece here. In verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Why does he qualify the children? He could have said, I rejoice greatly to find your children walking in the truth. Why is it as some? I think it's important for us to understand that not all were walking according to the truth. There were people in the church, and there were children even in the church, and the lady, children of the lady who were not walking in the truth. I think for us, we again, feel like this is redundant. Why are we spending more time on talking about love? Why are we spending more time talking about truth? Because there are some who are not walking in it. And the danger is a present reality even in our body. To understand that there are some who are not walking in the truth. You have to, you have to believe it, alright? You have to believe this truth. That's a central truth, particularly of the Incarnation. John's concern is that they are believing the truth. They're believing rightly. But not just that. There has to be obedience to that truth. There has to be some sort of action that accompanies the receiving of truth. And so you have to obey it. You have to seek to conform our lives to it. Too often with truth, we seek to conform truth to our lives rather than looking at the truth and conforming our life to it. The question is, is when Scripture speaks, do you listen and do you conform to it or do you find a way to make it fit into what you already believe? That's the difference between believing and obeying. Understand that this truth is not something that you can just pick and choose. It's not something that you can conform to you because of just the nature of this truth. You see, as you study other things in life, whether it be uh, mathematics, whether it be different types of sciences, whether it be literature, whatever it may be, you can approach it from a scholarly standpoint. Now, Robbie's struggling with this whole process right now in one of his religion classes. They want him to approach Scripture as if it was just a scholarly endeavor, an academic exercise. We can't do that when it comes to this. So when you're reading you know, political views, you can read the opposing arguments to try to gain wisdom. 
We try to explore it in a sophisticated and mature way. We can't do that when it comes to the truth of God's Word. What God's Word says, it says. What it means, it means. You don't get to find alternative ways. We don't get to weigh the Bible against the Quran. We don't get to weigh the Bible against <laughs> anything else. It stands on its own. When you encounter the truth of Scripture, you have to mold your life to the truth, not the other way. The nature of this truth is simply the fact that it dwells in believers. If it existed outside of believers, it might be something that you could sort through. But the truth dwells in us, and we walk in it. Because of the nature of this truth, because of the fact that this truth is something that must be walked in, resided in, as John would say, particularly in his language, abide in, it's not something that you can sort through. You can't be on a grapevine and wonder what it's like to maybe be an apple tree. You abide in the vine. And that truth is a fundamental reality of who and what you are. There is no other option. When it comes to the truth of God's word, it is a fundamental reality of our lives. It is who you are. There is no other option except to be apart from the truth. I think that's the fundamental dividing line that happens when you get to John's warning and concern of some were walking in the truth. So which can be said of us today? Are you conforming your life to the truths, the realities of Scripture as it is? Or are you conforming the truth of Scripture to your life? See, to go astray from revealed truth is not just an unfortunate error. It's not an oopsie-daisy. It's an active disobedience. When it comes to sin and this idea of, as John Owen would say, the mortification of sin, killing sin, being about warring against sin, as Matt said last week, pursuing holiness. That's not a passive activity. It's an active pursuit. It's not an unfortunate error to simply have the wrong doctrine. Matt and I are passionate about doctrine because we believe that we are believing rightly. And when we find that we are not believing rightly, we change what we believe in accordance with what Scripture has revealed to us. There's a part of me as a pastor that's okay with walking people through difficult concepts. I I certainly am even still working through those now. Uh, The book that I posted yesterday has been a a fantastic resource for even just that this past year. That is an ongoing thing as we discover and learn God's Word better. But understand that, that it's, if we seem not harsh, I don't want to use that word particularly on what I'm preaching. If we seem overly sincere in our doctrinal stances, it's because it's important. There is nothing else. Truth is the only thing that we stand on. To be in error is to be in rebellion to God. To believe wrongly about God is sin, and that is rebellion against a holy God. It is a big deal. It's not just something we can sift through and find out one day. We submit to God's word whether we understand it or not, because it is truth. God has not revealed his truth in such a way as to leave us free at our pleasure to believe or disbelieve it, to obey or disobey it. Revelation carries with it a responsibility. And the clearer the revelation, the greater the responsibility to believe and obey it. There are some things in Scripture that I'm okay with kind of working through because I don't think they're as clear in revelation of Scripture. But there are things that are clearly revealed that we don't get to mess around with. It says it, we do it. Those type of things are the ones that I'm particularly talking about in truth. There is much in God's word that is very, very clear. He gave us his word for us to understand it. So that it could be equipping the believers. In fact, that it's everything that we need for a life of godliness. Scripture is absolutely sufficient for our lives because we can understand it. And much of it is incredibly, incredibly clear. Even for those who may not have the Spirit and cannot be illuminated in their understanding can see simple do's and don'ts. Now, the Spirit for us would enable us and illuminate us to see the depth of those commands. What does it mean to have no other gods before me? It's more than just, I 
should put God first. A believer with the Spirit should understand the weight of that, of that command. And so for us, when we're talking about clear revelation, we have a responsibility to receive it, believe it, and obey it. With that, that kind of takes me to something that I was working through later this week. Um, I did just tell you all that you have to believe something, uh, whether you believe it or not, and that you have to love something, whether you love it or not. So I think the question is, is how can John in the first place command faith and love? How can you command someone to believe something? How can you command someone to love something? How can you ask or tell me to believe what I do not believe? How can you ask or tell me to love what I do not love? I think the answer is found in the nature of Christian faith and love. The modifier Christian would change, ideally, love and faith. You see, it's only when faith is regarded as uh, like an intuition or love is simply regarded as an emotion that they appear to lie beyond the sphere of duty, where you can say, I'm not having the emotions, so I'm not required or responsible to love. It's only when you relegate love to an emotion or when you relegate belief to an intuition. It, it makes sense to me. I, uh, it, it kind of sparked. The light bulb went off. I get it now, so now I can believe it. That's not acceptable. That is not Christian faith and love. Christian faith is an obedient response to God's self-revelation in Christ. That's what Christian faith looks like. So when we see in Romans chapter 12 that God is the one who gives faith, how does he give faith? He gives faith by allowing us to have an obedient response to God's self-revelation in Christ. Because Christ is, we can have belief. Because God revealed himself in Christ, we can have belief. And in fact, we can command belief. Now, obviously, when we search back there, we will understand that God has to be the one to give it. But it's not just that. Most of the responsibility, all of the responsibility, at least for us, as we'll be held accountable for, is on us. That self-revelation in Christ contains moral content. Jesus didn't just show up and kind of do life. Everything that he did had God behind it. Everything that he did had consequences for the rest of human history. Everything that he did had moral content to it. And John tells us in chapter 3 of his gospel, if men hate the light, it is because their deeds are evil. If we cannot believe, if we cannot walk in the light, it's because their deeds are evil. And so fundamentally, they do not believe in the Son because they are resolved not to obey him. Because they are evil, they do not believe in the Son because they are resolved not to obey him. And this is why unbelief is sin and the unbeliever is condemned already. So how can we command belief? Because God has revealed himself. It's not an intuition. It's not based on what you think. It's not based on what I want it to be. I'm commanded to believe because God has revealed himself. Unbelief and God's revelation is sin. And that is what causes us to be condemned already. But it's not just faith it's, or in truth. It's, it's love. Christian love is in the sphere of action. It's not in the sphere of emotion. To say that I must love somebody because I have an emotion towards it would be someone to com command me to love Michigan. Cannot do that. Don't have that feeling inside of me. In fact, have the opposite. Um, not a fan of the Wolverines in any form. Doesn't matter. Blue and yellow. Try to avoid it at all costs. Um, yeah, that, that's my life. Um, I walk through sports stores and I take Ohio State shirts and I put them on top of the Michigan one. Um, I'm not lying. <laughs> I do that. Um, I don't have an emotional desire to love Michigan. I can't take that into my Christian life. That's not what love is. That's not what John's talking about, and that's not the true essence of love. How do we know that God loved us? He sent his son, and he slayed him. Both of those are actions. The sending and slaying of the son is the exact same example that we can understand of how did God love us. For God loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. That is love. 
While we were rebellious sinners stuck in our own design, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for people that would never claim him but by the grace of God. And so Christian love is in the sphere of action, not emotion. It's not an involuntary, uncontrollable passion. But it's an unselfish uh, service undertaken by deliberate choice. Love is something that you do deliberately. It is an action and a choice that you make. And so both faith and love are commanded. So I hope that kind of clears up this idea of, well, how can he command us to do something that we're not feeling? How can he command us to do something that we don't believe? How can he push us to do something like that? It's because of the revelation of God and his son, Jesus Christ, and because the action of that son on the cross to die for those who are lost. And so as we kind of conclude today, I hope you've been able to see some of the tying in of love and truth. And we're going to explore that from a little bit different angle next week uh, as we spend a little bit more time on truth particularly. But as far as it's concerned about love, understand that this love, again, is not a loose love. It's not a simple affection for something. It is beyond affection. It is beyond emotions. It is action and deliberate action. It's not a cold and dispassionate obedience. To simply obey without loving is not obedience. It is not love. I find myself struggling with this one particularly. I need to love my sacrifice. I need to love my obedience. I need to love doing what I do to serve others. If I just do it to serve, then I'm not loving. And it is ultimately for me because it is out of duty. It's not cold and dispassionate obedience. Rather, it is warm and it desires to give itself for the good of others. That is what John is talking about here. That is what John is doing. That's what he's emulating. And that's what God commanded and that's what God did. Real Christianity involves love. And Father, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful for an opportunity to explore what you would have us do when it comes to giving of ourselves to others, when it has implications for what we do as a body of believers, when we're exploring what it means to lay down our lives for each other. And Father, we cannot simply resign ourselves to saying, yes, we love our brother so much that we would lay down our life and we're not even willing to give him lunch money. We're not even willing to give him an evening. We're not willing to let them borrow a car. When we talk about loving each other, that is a, a dutiful love. That is not a self-sacrificial love for the benefit of others. And Father, I would ask that you cause us to love sacrifice. And Father, as we measure the things of our life that we're giving up, we would measure them against the cross, the one and only true standard of love. Father, we're thankful for your spirit that empowers us to even do any of these things. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to come to your throne. Father, I'd ask that you continue to guide us as a church and to what it means to lay down our lives for the benefit of others. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.